let's take a moment and share um, our good wishes to all those in our lives that need healing. May, may our efforts and our good wishes be felt by them. So um, I'm going to begin by reading the Metta Sutta, the Sutta on Loving Kindness. I don't think I ever have before. And um, one of one of <laughs> I have to laugh at myself. One of the things about ADD, I don't know about your ADD, my ADD, is that it's hard to read the same thing over and over. Like there's some Dharma teachers um, who for 20 years have read the same Dharma talks every, th- you know, every retreat, every three-month retreat. And maybe you're lucky if you get one or two new talks. But I can't do it. The downside is that some, sometimes it just is very potluck because right in front of the Dharma talk I'm like, I just can't say the same thing again. Some of you have heard for 20 years <laughs> the same Dharma talk. So, um, and yet, uh, it's just always coming to the same truths, just trying some different gateways. So, in honor of something new, I don't think I've ever read the Metta Sutta to you, so here is the Metta Sutta. This is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good and has obtained peace. Let one be strenuous, upright and sincere, without pride easily contented and joyous. Let one not be submerged by the things of the world. Let one not take upon oneself the burden of riches. Let one's senses be controlled. Let one be wise but not puffed up. And let one not desire great possessions, even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong, in high or middle or low realms of existence, small or great, visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born, may all beings be happy. Let no one deceive another, nor despise any being in any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another. Even as a mother, at the risk of her life, watches (coughs) over and protects her only child, So with a boundless mind should one cherish all living things, suffusing love over the entire world, above, below and all around, without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill towards the whole world, standing or walking, sitting or lying down, during all one's waking hours, let one practice the way with gratitude, not holding on to fixed views, endowed with insight, free from sense appetites. One who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death. It's a different interpretation, translation, isn't it? It's kind of nice. Ruth gave it to me, Ruth, my teacher. Something strikes me about the one line um, of a mother at the risk of her life watching over and protecting her only child. 
I know, it, at least as a child, I don't think I always experienced that with my mother. Uh, and yet, that um, unconditional love that we might, for, for those of us who've been mothers, have had for children, for our children, or for our partners or our pets, just something about that love that cares in such a, um, not overprotection, but cares for the preciousness of the life that one has birthed. And that kind of unconditional love is the love that we are invited to, so that we might begin to care for this life in that way, this unique and precious life, to extend that same wish for our own protection, that own caring, that sense of um, being enveloped by our own love. But it isn't, it isn't the, and this is the thing that feels like it's such a, um, a tightrope, because it's not I-centered in the sense of um, I'm more important than anyone else. But when we think of ourselves here in this room and how each one of us is important, how each one of us here has our place, this our place, and in community, that feeling of being in community, I'm here in community, and in that relatedness, so I'm here as part of the earth, and in that relatedness and that groundedness with life comes that kind of relationship of seeing each of our own preciousness. And the, the, the um, wish to protect the life that's been given to us. In that sense, the Metta Sutta is that wish that we might wish ourselves well-being and through uh, starting with ourselves, moving to others. The other way also works, starting with others and coming to ourselves. So it's um, pre-Valentine's Day and um, and so that's somewhat the inspiration for talking about um, loving kindness. And I wanted then to go through the practices, the traditional practices to cultivate loving kindness. And I'm going to read all six of them and then backtrack and begin with the first one. So the first is to remember the positive characteristics of ourselves or other beings in their or our attitude, speech, and behavior. The second is persons who have performed immoral deeds will experience the difficult realms. That is when we're having a hard time loving someone who has um, acted or said, done something that has been uh, unskillful. The third is, we are the owners of our own deeds. Will not our own anger lead to our harm? We are the owners of our deeds, heir of our deeds, having deeds as our parents, deeds as our kin, and deeds as our refuge. 
we will become heir to whatever deeds we do. That's the law of karma. So, um, in particularly in the Zen and Mahayana tradition, karma and the understanding of karma is seen as the central teaching, uh, uh, even more important than freedom from the identification, constriction, and attachment to I. So in understanding over and over again that whatever intention we have and how behavior, thoughts, and speech come out of intentions and the consequences of that, whenever we see that consequence, we reflect that our intentions towards goodwill will become our heirs. That is, that we will always reap the consequences of ill will. Our intentions towards loving kindness will be our heirs and we will always reap the consequences, um, the positive consequences to loving kindness. Um, So just to stay with that another moment. In, and I think I've talked about this before, as we look at our neuron pathways, it's said that every thought that we have um, triggers a neural pathway. And when we have the same negative thoughts over and over again, that neural pathway, it's sort of like driving down a dirt road. As you drive down a dirt road, you, you create um, the uh, deepening of tracks, right? And then if you keep driving down, if you've ever lived off a dirt road, you create deeper and deeper tracks. And I think of the Grand Canyon and how over time, you know, the erosion of the river that started at the level of the top of the Grand Canyon and over these many, many years have created these incredible deep tracks in the earth. Sometimes I feel like some of my habitual negative thoughts (laughs) have gotten as deep as the Grand Canyon. You know, and it feels, and this is the thing about it, because we've had the same negative thoughts over and over again, they feel true just because they're deep. And this is what the Buddha is pointing to in um, this reflection on loving-kindness. Like, given that every thought creates a track, a neural pathway in our mind, refrain from going down that path. Call in the alternative thought of loving-kindness which is the antidote to ill will. So, um, uh, I, I think, did I say that, I think, did I say it? I think I said it maybe in the interview or maybe here. Um, I, so I notice my tracks and then for some reason it's very helpful, I switch to railway tracks, like, okay, I'm on the train down ill will. And I imagine I've come to an old signal. You know those old signals on the railway lines where, where it would um, give a sign of the train that it was going to change our railway lines? Anyway, we had them in England because I used to take a train to school. And it, the train would cross tracks to take another, you know, to cross and take another line. And the signal would change to let the train know that it could take the other track. And I'm like going down. I can't believe they haven't cleaned the kitchen. 
I can't tell you how many thoughts I could, how many times I've had this thought. I'm totally irritated. And I notice myself and I'm like, I've got to the signal. Change the signal. Arena, change the track. You know, and I imagine the signal. I really do this. I imagine the signal changing and my train changes tracks and direction. <laughs> Because every thought is imprinting itself on our neural pathways. That's the physiological expression of what the Buddha is saying when he says that we are heir to the karma of our thoughts and that every negative thought will bring the consequences of that. So that is number three. Number four, think of those who are liberated and think of the conduct of the Buddha. Five, it's not easy to find a being who is not being your mother, father, sister, brother, or lover. Six, review the advantages of loving kindness and the 11 benefits. We sleep in comfort. We wake in comfort. We have dreams without nightmares. We are dear to human beings. We are dear to non-human beings. The deities guard us. Fire and poison do not affect us. The mind is easily concentrated. We have serene facial expressions. We die unconfused and we're born in the heavenly realms. Those are the 11 benefits of loving-kindness. So, um, so then I want to backtrack to what it actually means to turn towards ourselves and see our beautiful qualities. Because we talked about decolonizing our neural pathways. And I want to acknowledge that the, um, that the loving kindness that we're talking about rests on the reality of living in systems that have um, colonized us. Let me find where this is. I hope I brought it. I wanted to read. So then maybe I'll just, um, it actually was a beautiful piece of writing of a young woman who was learning to, um, oh, thank you, a young woman who was learning to um, row and um, the, the teacher was, um, the, the teacher was, the rowing teacher was a guy and she, she was a woman, and um, so, but I didn't bring it in all the things that I did bring. Mm -hmm. and, um, and he used that kind of training of, you're no good, you're, you know, you're lousy, you're just shit, you know, don't bother coming to training next time, because she had dropped the pacing of her rowing and the team had lost. And so she's writing about her experience of trying hard and dropping the pace of the rowing and so the team loses. And 
It reminded me of the school I went to when I was growing up in South Africa, which was a neighborhood Afrikaner school. And I had my, my home teacher was Mr. Engelbert, an Afrikaner, and he believed in corporal punishment. And I remember getting an answer wrong. This is, you know, maybe when I was seven or eight at school. And he, um, it wasn't just me, he, he did this for other people, but he would zero in on particular people and he zeroed in on me a lot. He had a big black, you know, on, in the classroom there were these big blackboards and he had this big ruler that was maybe that thick that he would hold to draw lines along the whole of the blackboard. And he would take this, this big ruler and he would, he, he would say, okay, my name was Berman then, okay, Berman, get in front, bend down, and he would take this ruler and he would hit you really hard. And actually being hit wasn't as bad as having to bend down in front of the whole class because mm -hmm. we were wearing dresses mm -hmm. and being hit. And I remember such a profound feeling of shame and also hatred. Like, if someone had had a gun in my household, it isn't hard for me to imagine taking that gun like so many students have, gone into their classroom, not understanding, of course, the preciousness of life and wanting to kill. And I know that we each, in our different ways and stories, have experienced moments of disrespect, where the integrity and the preciousness of our being has been violated. And when the Buddha came to enlightenment, and he looked through the eons of lifetimes. He said he couldn't find a beginning where that wasn't happening. That there is ignorance <clears throat> wired into life in some way and that it gets expressed over and over in different ways in different times. And we could say that that ignorance has perfected itself in our particular civilization, in the um, ways that greed and hatred have colonized our, our cultures, our structures, and the impact of that, of how it impacted our grandparents, our parents, and how it's impacted us. And so we come to the practice, we, when we turn towards ourselves with mindfulness, we are turning also to these places. And that this path is about holding both our suffering and the places where we've been wounded, where our integrity has been violated where instead of that preciousness being reflected back, we've had the opposite reflected back. Those pathways that we've taken in and believed live inside of us. And the practice of loving-kindness is the antidote of that. But I'm starting that way because, especially for those of you who are new, when I first heard the practice of loving-kindness, when I first heard the Metta Sutta, I just wanted to vomit. I was like, oh, that is so nauseating. Because the impact 
of all the violations that some that I and some of us have experienced have been so profound and the defense has been so profound that when we hear loving kindness it actually hurts it actually does feel nauseating and we actually want to shut down from it we actually don't want to practice it and it's only through understanding and naming this, which actually none of my teachers did, really. No one said what I'm saying. But it's really only through naming this that we start to find a gateway into the practice of love, into somehow touching what's underneath it all, in touching what is being untouched, that is loving and that knows we are precious and that we deserve love. So that reminds me of a teacher called uh, um, Frazier and she... she mm-hmm. What's her name? Jan. 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 Jan Frazier. And I met with her a number of years ago. And um, she said to me, if you drop down into your heart of hearts, you will find the place that has been untouched. That place that we sometimes touch and that we sometimes can't is, uh, is living inside of us. And it's that that calls us to navigate our own unique path into the practice of loving kindness. That there are places that haven't been wounded and haven't uh, been violated that live inside of us. And we call on it, even when there's a part of us that doesn't believe it, we call on it through our intention. I can't now, but may I find unconditional love for myself. I want to, and I'm aligning my mind to this railway track, may I? May I see my own preciousness and uniqueness so that I have unconditional love for myself? May that come to be, even if it isn't now, may it come to be. And so that neural pathway is alighted and we keep doing it, and we keep doing it, and we keep doing it. So, I, I um, uh, resonated with the story of this young woman who I wrote because one of the ways that the reflection of my preciousness wasn't um, given to me by my parents but particularly my father, was his own sense of failure and because of it, how much he wanted me to succeed. So if I didn't get like all A's, he would scream at me. Even when I was at, you know, six. Do you call that preschool here? Is that preschool or preschool before six? First grade. So like just, early on, this incredible stress of, no, you idiot, what's wrong with you? You know, what's the matter? I work so hard. and No, it was horrible, actually. And so, you know, I would sometimes give a Dharma talk where it was, like, not flowing exactly, or where I, you know, it was like, God, what, what exactly am I saying? You know, and I would feel 
such a deep sense of self-hatred and it would last for days, days and days. And I can't tell you what a relief, well you know, what a relief it is when those thoughts come up and that the depth of those neural pathways through the practice of loving-kindness uh, have been filled in so much that when it comes up, because it still comes up, it doesn't grip so much. It's like, oh, I know you. It's okay. And, you know, and it might, instead of days, it might last for like half an hour. Mm-hmm. You know, and I'll, I'll do walking meditation or meta. So the healing power of loving-kindness, it is profound and deep. Um, this is, you know, I thought, oh, it's so funny, I, was, I took all these beautiful notes. I'll have to bring these notes and read them tomorrow because I, um, I, I wrote these beautiful notes in, the, in my room, on my desk, and not here. Of, um, I didn't bring them. So, um, so the, um, one was from Leslie Feinberg, mm-hmm. and she said, um, I wasn't born with love, I had to construct it. Mm-hmm. So beautiful. And that's what we're doing. We have this potential this that calls us for whatever good karmic reason for each of us that we're here, that calls us to begin to construct. That's one way to talk about it, because it feels like both constructing and unobstructing the heart by using particular phrases and intentions, we construct, we take these pieces of intention and build the heart. And at the same time as we're building, something even precious underneath begins to flow. So, uh, the, the, um, then the practice of looking at our beautiful qualities, the first of these practices of intentionally looking at what we're doing and seeing what's beautiful about it. Over and over again during these days that you're here. Like every sitting, coming back from the mind wandering, appreciating it seeing that as this beautiful act of loving-kindness, that you come to the zendo, to this meditation hall, seeing it as an act of giving yourself the um, blessings of practice, that you stayed through the whole meditation, appreciating it, seeing it as an expression of your courage and perseverance and determination. That's when we were exploring about agency, that sense of constructing the heart by seeing everything we're doing through the light of um, the wholesome and the positive qualities. Um, So, in this retreat, some of you have given up your beds that others might be more comfortable. When we're navigating the shoe, who designed that shoe room? They weren't thinking. But when we navigate all our coats and there's so many people here, how often have you stood aside to let someone grab their coat? Just the many acts of generosity or uh, I was uh, um, with um, uh, 
going to reach for some nuts in the main house at the snack table and someone else did and we played the stars of no here you no you you just that that wish to support each other so reflect on it that's what the buddha is saying reflect on your beautiful actions reflect on your generosity contemplate it because every time you do you are creating the neural pathways. This is um, this is a, a poem that uh, I am um, from a woman I met, um, Jacqueline Scott Ramos. There's a a series of dialogues around race that have been happening at the Poppy, Red Poppy House in San Francisco in the Mission. And um, Marcus Shelby, who is a, an incredible musician, bass player, um, has been um, facilitating them. And uh, Jackie <coughs> is a poet, and she, a young, a young uh, uh, African-American woman, and this is a poem that she just um, riffed in the moment at one of our dialogues, and I asked her to write it down for me. And this is what she says. You see me, don't you? You see how the sun radiates on this caramel trail caught skin, how gold glistens in heat waves and bounces off as its rays catch me. You see me, don't you? When I walk, its long strides smooth as the Nile, hips caress the wind side to side. My aura, it radiates with pure conviction, leaves scents of sweet aroma. Ah, love is in the air. You see me, don't you? When I speak, my words are weapons against the oppressor, healing for the oppressed. By no means am I perfect. I am just grounded. A strong sense of self that seeks the truth, cries for justice. You see me, don't you? My eyes tell the story of indigenous movement. My heart sings chords of service. My hands give prints of perseverance. You see me, don't you? My creator lives in me, I in him. I am his instruments of peace, hope, and faith. You see me, don't you? Next time our paths intersect that brown girl you see walking, youthful in spirit, hungry for life, release falsified assumptions. Don't put me in a box to give you momentary ease, for I am all the creator made me to be. I am queen, a sister, a friend, a warrior, I am a lover. When you see me, use your heart, build with me, let's heal each other, our community, para la gente, now, now you see me. So, um, I'd like to ask you all to write a riff. I'm serious. Uh, in whatever way you would like to, of uh, uh, as an expression of your beautiful self. <coughs> and at the end of the retreat, if you're willing, we can read them. If not, just lay them on the altar table. A moment or more, just riff. Write something beautiful as a way to support those pathways. Mm. I wanted to um, I wanted to mention two other beautiful um, expressions of loving kindness, and one is when I was driving with my realtor looking at houses, she pointed out crossing and she said this is a salamander crossing mm -hmm. and every month there's a stop sign here where cars stop for the salamanders to cross the road. Mm 
And then that reminded me of a story of um, a, a very busy freeway and how a driver, sort of being mindful, saw a row of ducks crossing the freeway, stopped his car and walked, you know, in front, uh, walked down the freeway and stood in the middle of the freeway with his hand up to slow the traffic down so that the ducks might pass. Just how we all have this incredible and beautiful capacity to be kind and generous. That's lovely. So we are building the capacity to hold, uh, uh, to turn towards that which is in suffering through our mindfulness practice, to acknowledge it because the Buddha said, if we don't see our suffering, our suffering can't heal. And so to turn towards the places where we're in suffering and to see them to allow them, to let them live the, those places, those dynamics in the field of loving-kindness. When the mind can't do that, when there is constriction and reactivity, when there is in moments um, that incapacity to uh, touch those places, then we move out and the traditional place to move out to is loving-kindness. But here's the thing about the ways those work. In building and supporting loving-kindness, in, in um, looking at what's beautiful, we strengthen the heart and mind to then turn back towards our suffering. And we build this capacity that comes to the place where we could say the depth of our joy rests on the depth of our sorrow. The depths of our joy rests on the depths of our sorrow. And the depths of our sorrow becomes the condition for the depths of our joy. So this is what Kehil Gibran said. Your joy is your sorrow unmasked. The deeper that sorrow carves into your being, the more your joy can be experienced. And isn't that true? And I go back to what Leslie Feinberg said, because I don't know if you all have read her books. Have, have you read her books? She's amazing. Stonebush Blues and her subsequent writing. Because here's one of our lineage holders who really explored her own suffering, first as a butch, as a queer butch, and then as a, and then as a trans as a trans man, and uh, then just gender variant. And she, they wrote so deeply about the confusion, um, first her and then their suicidal tendencies, the isolation of being uh, genderqueer and then trans before it, it has become the movement that it has become. And how much she said it was only through that suffering that she became who she was. 
And isn't that true for you? That all the suffering that you have experienced becomes your strength and what you uniquely can contribute. Are you okay? Yes. What you uniquely can contribute to life and how life is living through you, how you understand it and what it's calling you to give. And so that's something, you know, we, in, when we language it, it's hard because it's different categories, but actually it's the same thing. That to me is how come the Buddha in the First Noble Truth <coughs> can talk about suffering as central to this practice as well as the practice of loving-kindness. That they are, that, that they become interchangeable. And so in talking about this practice of loving-kindness, we're not doing it as a sort of, as kind of exclusionary, but really as an integral part of, of, um, in seeing where we're beautiful, we, there, it, it flows into where it's wounded. And as it flows into where it's wounded, we become beautiful again. It's this natural flow that we will find ourselves in until probably we die. That's the matter that the Buddha is talking about. Okay, let's see if I can find um, uh, one more thing to read to close. Maybe this, this is one of my our favorite poems. Wage Peace by Judith Hill. But before I do, I just want to take a moment to see if... Hmm. I think just to say, especially for some of you are going tomorrow, just to about suffering and why I'm talking about suffering is that it's so easy in the context of this culture and how suffering becomes a way to put people down and how we've inherited that. You know, that, um, that when we're suffering there's something wrong with us and how radical these teachings are because they're saying um, this is part of being a human being and the ways that each of us uniquely experience our suffering um, become, I don't want to, are our grace. They are our grace and that one of the beauties of being together in a community, in a community that perhaps with some of you who have been sitting together for a long time, and some of you have known me for a long time, and some perhaps just through sensing how it is in this room, to have the courage to allow ourselves to feel those depths. of pain and grief, of self-hatred and judgment, without the shame and blame, to trust that as a community we can hold each other, to feel it. Because in the feeling of that suffering, in the allowing of it, suffering is healed. And that it isn't the pain and grief or blame and shame that we experience that's the issue. 
It's the not wanting it that's the issue. So when those feelings come up, and we talked about this this morning, the not wanting is the problem. And that if we can surrender the not wanting into the opening, just as much as we can, that becomes the grounds for healing. And there's something in that that we could then describe as the sacred circle, the sacred circle of liberation, to give that space, to acknowledge rather than hide, yes, we are the recipients of colonization, we are the recipients of ignorance, and we're living, and we're living it. No shame and blame in beginning to open and to feel that. That's loving, <coughs> that is loving ourselves. Okay. Wage peace. Wage peace with your breath. Breathe in firemen and rubble. Breathe out whole buildings and flocks of red-winged blackbirds. Breathe in terrorists and breathe out sleeping children in freshly mown fields. Breathe in confusion and breathe out maple trees. Breathe in fallen and breathe out lifelong friendships and tap. Wage peace with your listening, hearing sirens, pray loud. (coughs) Remember your tools, flower seeds, clothes, pins, clean rivers. Make soup. Play music. Learn the word for thank you in three languages. Learn to knit and make a hat. Think of chaos as dancing raspberries. Imagine grief as the outbreath of beauty or the gesture of fish. Swim for the other side. Wage peace. Never has the world seemed so fresh and precious. Have a cup of tea and rejoice. Act as if armistice has already arrived. Don't wait another minute. Celebrate today. Okay, let's sit for a moment. Thank you for your listening.